Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest to my podcast, An Apple A Week, with Dr. Katie Allen, the leader of the Victorian Liberals, John Pesuto, who is also the member for Hawthorne. And John is a man who has huge integrity and has been fighting the good fight here in the state of Victoria. Uh, but it's wonderful to have you online here today, John, to talk about all things liberal and how we can fly the flag blue here in Victoria again. Oh, thanks, Katie. I'm absolutely delighted to be on. Uh, I've seen these podcasts and uh, had hoped that one day I might get on one. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Excellent. Well, you know, it's actually true. There's that, you know, when people talk about John Pursuit, they talk about a decent guy with integrity. Um, and we are interested to know, Victorian Liberals have had three defeats, 2014, 2018, 2022. And I was, you know, in the trenches in the 2018 election with you as my neighbouring. I was a candidate. You were obviously an MP. The dignity and grace that you uh, expressed during that terrible, um, terrible time, you know, you, you've you've been out in the trenches, you've taken the bullets and you're still flying the flag for the Liberals. But tell me, in leading into the 2026 election, uh, will anything be dif different under you and, and do you think you can win the 2026 election? Yes, Katie. And, and look, yes to both questions. I think... You know, what the, the last three election defeats at a state level, and also I'd add the, the most recent federal election, uh, raises many challenges for the party. I think foremost among them is just operationally how connected we are with communities right across the state or, or, or the country. I'll talk more about Victoria. But, you know, you might see behind me some of the maps of, of the regions in Victoria, and there are... Uh, you know, regions where we have very little presence in the lower house. And what that's, a, I think, the combination of is as a party, we haven't done as well as we could and should to actually connect and build a movement right across Victoria. So what's happened is as we've suffered defeats over time in seats, particularly in regions, uh, whether it's Ballarat and Bendigo, where we used to hold the seats uh, there, we don't hold them and we haven't for some time, it's then meant that our political opponents can focus on the seats that you and I have represented, uh, Katie, and all of their resources can be deployed there. So at an operational level, um, I, I think what's got to be different about 2026 is uh, what I liken to a kind of 50-state strategy, if I can adopt an Americanism there, which is we have to just be as passionate and as active on the ground right across uh, Victoria, including you know, Western Melbourne and Northern Melbourne, where we traditionally have not held seats, we actually have to start really contesting those areas and, and not just taking them lightly, actually seriously doing it, because not only in the short term, but in the long term, that's a benefit for us. I think in terms of policy, that's obviously a, a, a process. Well, let's get back to that. Let's get yeah. to policy in a moment, because that you've got you've raised a really, I think, juicy topic, um, and that is 
you know, at the basic fundamental principles of liberalism, I think, are values that are pretty much accepted universally. Mm. You know, the opportunity for freedom, for people to get ahead, um, for people to aspire to support their family and their, their community and their country, and then the responsibility of giving back to helping those who can't mm. help themselves. So, you know, I always find it quite amazing that, you know, we think about red seats and blue seats when actually fundamentally it's our liberal values that should be shining through. And in the last state election, what was interesting was there was a, a statewide swing against Labor of about 6%, mm. but it was in seats that didn't flip. They were actually in the mm. red seats. So what you're articulating here is that um, with this changing place in politics, things moving very quickly, that there is opportunities in the seats we wouldn't normally think about in the past. Is that what you're saying? A absolutely. And, you know, you think about it in 2023, should Labor be able to hold a seat with a 25 or 30% margin? No. I mean, our primary can't be, you know, as low as, you know, 25 or lower um, for any reason other than we haven't contested it seriously and haven't actually invested the time and resources to build a party presence in those seats. And it will benefit us in many ways. One, in the medium to longer term, we'll start seeing candidates come through in those seats if we seriously contest them. And secondly, in the upper house, and this, this would also apply for the Senate, but if we want to be able to reach that magic 21 number in 2026 where we can actually pass legislation in the upper house, we need to be contesting particularly areas like northern metro and western metro in particular uh, to build our upper house vote. But it's good for the party too because you rightly point out, and, and I think we are on the same page on this, the classic liberal values, when people think about the Liberal Party and what it stands for, it shouldn't matter what religion you are, if any. It shouldn't matter what background you are, ethnically or racially. It, it, none of that should matter because enterprise, choice, aspiration, uh, all of those things that we hold dear are universal and timeless. Yeah, and, and they're timeless. So it should apply as much in Armadale as it does in Hawthorne, as it does in Melton and Werribee and Sydenham. I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a strong presence. And I think it's more... Katie, for me, it seems to be an historical legacy rather than anything else. We simply haven't had a serious presence in northern and western Melbourne in particular, and that's now having big impacts on us. And I remember uh, working on your campaign in 2019, and it really first dawned on me, for all the years I've been in, I remember standing there at the poll, the pre-poll uh, with you and everybody else and wondering why there must be, I don't know what it was, it must have been 70-odd people handing out for everyone apart from us. Like we had our own volunteers. And I'm thinking, where are all these people coming from? It was Tradesall, it was ACT, everyone. And and really the obvious answer is they don't have to contest anywhere else. So they mm. can seize seize upon our, you know, classic seats, uh, whether it's Higgins, Kuyong, Hawthorne, or sorry, that's my light going out, but uh, wherever it is, um, they can contest them without worrying about their own backyard. And that's got to change. So, so you know, you you touched on this before. Of course, philosophy um, underpins policy, and you know we're obviously you know not on the ground in some of these seats, but more than that, you know, media, social media, it goes everywhere now. I mean, in fact, we're not really fighting geographically. We should be fighting for the hearts and minds of all Victorians, irrespective of where they live, mm. irrespective, as you said, of their background or their demography. It's about what we're doing to help them. So let's move to policy now. What do you think are the important issues that Victorians want to get behind in order to change the government? 
Yeah, so look, obviously speaking in the state context, but I think we've got a real values debate and contest in Victoria now more than ever. And, and I think it's never been as, if you like, pronounced as it is right now. And there's a range of things that have, have come to the fore. So first of all, I'd talk about aspiration, choice and enterprise. So there are three values I, I, I draw on because the recent state budget really put that more than any other budget before it has actually um, put that actually in people's minds. And pe I'm not talking about people who are hardwired into politics. These are people who don't normally follow politics avidly. They've got a view. Most people do. They'll follow it and they, they'll, they'll distill what they need to about political figures and the issues. But I think the budget really crystallised for a lot of Victorians just how important these values are. So, you know, for small business people, the combination of payroll taxes, work cover, um, now there's a holiday tax, which is the Airbnb tax, if you like, uh, which has been announced today, plus a range of other taxes. All of a sudden, this idea that if you decide to create a business, you're going to be penalised for it and somehow you've got something to answer for if you've taken a risk. And so I think that now has become main, but that's, that's really been energised as an issue. I think choice as well, uh, the schools tax, which um, we've spoken about previously, I know, Katie, that has galvanised a lot of communities. And, and it's not just, I'm not talking about the, the high fee paying end of the independent school sector. This is this is applying to, to a lot of schools. And even those who aren't necessarily caught by it are worried now about being caught by it in the future. And then there's the land tax grab, which, you know, was insidious because it's actually been um, widened to capture people on modest incomes. These aren't people who are wealthy property developers. These are nurses, tradies, technicians who have saved up and have chosen their own form of retirement in the form of a property portfolio getting here. So that's, in terms of what we're taking to the election, that's um, really important as well. So um, the, the, what we're finding, certainly in recent weeks and months, is that the basic issues around cost of living are, are on people's minds more than they've been in a long time. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the thing, isn't it, about cost of living is that, you know, everyone knows the impost that taxes pay play into with regards to, you know, their ability to get ahead. So, yeah. so I suppose the question is, you know, we have this sort of the break being put on to people's lives by labour, um, but there's also the accelerator with regards to out-of-control costs. Um, mm. And so when we see these budget blowouts, and I know when I was running in 2018 I spoke to people about this terrible but budget blowouts, you know, in construction. Um, and the polling was showing that people care about taxes at the federal level. They're not as worried at the state level because, you know, you've got to spend. You've got to spend to build hospitals and schools. So don't see the, the cost blowouts in the same mm. way. You know, perhaps someone says, you know, if you renovate a house, it always has a cost blowout, so we'll be a bit forgiving. But that seems to have changed recently. It seems that the pivot point about these cost blowouts, you know, no one knows whether something should be a billion or $2 billion. It sounds like huge money that you didn't, wouldn't be able to understand anyway. But the Commonwealth Games and the most recent budget, and we can put the taxes in there, but the Commonwealth Games, to me, seem to be a bit of a pivot point of people saying, hang on now, you knew what it would cost or you thought you knew what it would cost. Only a couple of weeks later, you, we hear that you didn't know what it was going to cost. So which was it? And were you just using it for political gains? Um, and, and by the way, you're embarrassing us. And by the way, there's this big cost blowout um, of not actually going ahead with the Commonwealth Games. How are you seeing that playing out down um, on the ground in Victoria? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think the, if you like, 
the government's been in office nearly nine years, and I reckon for the first seven and a half to eight years, like a lot of governments, you can get away with overspending for a while because the ratings agencies will absorb a bit. They won't sort of crack the whip too soon. There are some things you can do to pad out a baked-in cost that might be running away from you in, in terms of budgets. What we've seen in the last sort of year and a half or so is this reckoning. And we've reached a point where the ratings agencies have said, whoa, you can't keep doing this. You've got debt approaching $200 billion. You're going to lose um, your ratings at the rate you're going. And remember, Victoria it has the worst rating of any state in the country. So it's being, it's sort of had, for the first time in its tenure, the Andrews government has faced external constraints on its spending that, that it can't dictate or monster. So, for example, business groups or, or the opposition or anyone can, can call on the government to exercise restraint in between elections. It can ignore those. It's harder to ignore that when it's coming from external bondholders and ratings agencies who are saying your debt profile is now unmanageable. So I think that's the first thing, and it's why the level of tax increases have shocked many Victorians who've, who've had to live with tax increases over the last nine years. But they've been, that to, be, to put it in context, a lot of the earlier tax increases were largely incremental, a bit like the, the frog in boiling water, and then all of a sudden it, it spilled over and then tax became an issue uh, in the state context. It hasn't been an issue to this extent. And and it, you're right to point to the Commonwealth Games because the Commonwealth Games was a $2.6 billion project on paper as recently as the May budget, and then the government said it was somewhere between six and seven. So it... What that tells you is that the budget was is in such a powerless state that it can't manage a project of that magnitude, particularly when it's got infrastructure projects which are, you know, costing many times more than the Commonwealth Games would have cost. But it, it tells you just how sensitive we are now to our debt profile and having to rein in spending. And, you know, the the government increasing taxes will earn it the wrath of the Victorian public as it's deservedly so, it'll be able to point to some of the ratings agencies and say, look, we're trying to deal with our revenue issues. But the problem is the government doesn't have any cost control on the other issues. Mm, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because there's so many things about the way this Labor government's approaching things that is having an impact. I, I wanted to, to sort of come back to this concept of Australia, oh, sorry, Victoria's got this big debt, and, and I understand Victoria's debt's greater than New South Wales, Queensland, and there's a third state, which Tasmania. is Tasmania altogether. Yeah. So that's a huge debt. But, you know, Victorians are very, you know, accommodating and tolerant people, and they go, well, you know, we went through a typical, difficult, sorry, COVID. Um, that's where I really cannot understand. I, I mean, I'm a public health professional, and I was in the trenches when COVID was happening and it was the contact tracing overseen by Dan Andrews that went wrong in this mm. state. The virus is the same right across the world and yet Dan Andrews could not contain the outbreaks that other states managed brilliantly and, in fact, these rolling knockdowns should be put at his feet. I mean, people talk about, oh, he locked us down too hard and, and certainly mm. he did do that and he shouldn't have locked down schools. We know that now. There's a lot of things that he did wrong. But no one seems to have made this connection that he locked us down because he had a public health failure. Mm. Well, that's absolutely right. And um, I think it was a combination of this, if you like, this obsession with centralising power 
He's he's been doing this increasingly so in the later years of his premiership, but he has been centralising power for some time. And what he wanted was the political dividend, as he calculated it, of being able to say, I'm in charge and we've got low numbers because we've shut everything down. As, as it turned out, he shut everything down. He torched much of the Victorian economy throughout it and then had nothing to show for it. Um, but the breakouts that we eventually saw because that so centralised and monstered um, uh, the public health response because it was a political response more than anything else that we paid a double whammy. We paid the economic price um, with you know many businesses never coming back. Uh, but also we had the breakouts that we did in the extended lockdowns, which I think were bad enough in themselves. But also for me, uh, look as I was looking at hoping to come back into the parliament and thinking, you can't treat people this way. And in particular, you can't have a system where you are selective in the lockdowns you impose and you're selective in the enforcement of those lockdowns. It was appalling to watch. Mm. Uh, how it was everything was political to the point where he was uh, appeared to be telling Victoria Police who they were going to investigate and who they were going to find. Well, you know, I was hearing from constituents that they knew that they had been in contact with people. Contact tracing hadn't, um, um, you know, contacted them, so they were just self-quarantining. But, you know, what we're seeing was this sort of, again, centralised, we'll just lock down by postcode or we'll just test by postcode, sorry, we'll just test by postcode rather than we will test by contact tracing and in fact we sent Alan Finkel in to sort out Victoria he said well we better take the team up to New South Wales they quarantined he got released to the to the boards leaked to the media um, and then Dan Andrews stood up at a press conference and said yes the Victorian team's going up to New South Wales to show yeah. them how to do it I mean blatant lies and um, we yeah. were trying to do it quietly we wanted Victoria to win because Australia wins um, we recommended the ADF come in to help the aged care homes they talked they said they didn't need the help but they refused it, even though Lisa Neville, uh, the email from Lisa Neville was just, you know, it was was actually produced. So there was a lot of sort of lies and cover-ups, actually, and it just, it, you know, it's unbelievable that this, you know, this whole sort of form of communication um, by Daniel Andrews seems to be almost, um, you know, uh, mm. how I end up with this. <laughs> okay. No, I don't want to say. It. I mean, it became, the, it became the Daniel Andrews show, and it was about... I remember at the time thinking, this isn't about a public health response. This is an obsession with how Daniel Andrews is handling the focus and the attention of his daily press conferences. And they became the story of the day rather than actually doing whatever we could. My, my, I guess my greatest frustration throughout that period, um, obviously sort of in a more of a commentary role at that time, was that I, I just felt then and I still feel now that the government could and should have been doing more to minimise the impacts of, of lockdowns. And certainly I think most people shared this view that early on, until we knew what we were dealing with, you know, a, a fairly, uh, if you like, cautious approach was was required. But when, when you saw him allowing some sectors to continue on, some people seemed to get favourable treatment, others not, at the cost of their livelihood, that became, I think, a, a toll that was was unfair to exact on, on the Victorian people. Um, and I think, you know, the when you think about the legacy of of Victoria's experience in that, you know, the two words that evoke, if you like, mockery almost now, even though it was tragic tragic at the time, but the words hotel quarantine and coat inquiry, to add a couple of more words, they kind of signify that kind of, you know, centralisation and cover-up 
of what went wrong and 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 the cost that Victorians bore for uh, bore for all of that, and and a government that got away without any any casualties other than Jenny um, mm. Macarcos. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm you know I'm in health as you know, and I I, I and. You know, have young young adults as children, but um, I was speaking to again constituents. People still feel very scarred by COVID. They don't actually want to talk about it, but also they're seeing the effects of their children missing out on important social kind of exposures. Um, I think there's still a lot of mental health um, in this in the system, so to speak, that is not being addressed. Um, and and people are scarred by COVID. They want to put it behind them. They want to move on. Um, but I do think that people. Um, haven't really woken up to the fact that some of this was unnecessary pain. Oh, I, I think that is absolutely right, Katie. And you know, you walk, you, you you're in the city a lot too. I know um, so many shops never opened again, uh, still shut. Many of our shopping strips haven't recovered at all. Uh, whereas, by comparison, other cities around the country have have bounced back a lot more strongly. I mean, I talk to people. Um, in stakeholder groups around Melbourne in particular, and they put the city back at 50 to 60% capacity. And, and look, one of the, I guess one of the um, mixed outcomes of, of COVID was, was working from home. And I guess we all like flexibility. I like it myself. And it's, I guess, at the end of the day, a matter largely for employers and employees. But, you know, our city's never recovered from that. And until you get more people back in the offices working and foot traffic during the week, um, the city is going to continue to struggle. So whilst I think all of us, myself included, welcome the flexibility that, you know, COVID brought, including more use of Zooms and, and Teams meetings, which have their place, of course, <laughs> uh, you know, the cost to the city uh, are ongoing, as you point out. Mm. I, mean, I think one, other, one final thing I'd like to talk about before we finish up is actually the issue of um, the construction industry and, you know, the big build that's going on in Victoria and how it's a bit of a sucking sound on the private sector and how we're seeing, um, you know, the collapse of some of the building industry and how that's mm. going to play out, knowing that we've got a home, you know, housing shortage, a home affordability issue, that's front and centre of young families trying to get into their own home. And we know as Liberals that we value people owning their own assets and owning their own home because it gives them something to save for and conserve once they have a home. Um, it's a real fundamental value that we support as Liberals. What is it Daniel Andrews doing in the state of Victoria to help or hinder the issue of housing availability? Yeah, well, he's not doing a lot and he hasn't done a lot in the nine years. And I don't say that lightly. They promised... I was out doing media today, Katie, and, and I reminded the media that in 2017, Daniel Andrews promised a 15-year pipeline of new homes to address the housing crisis in Victoria. That was in early 2017 and nothing's been done since. So he's come out with an announcement today, if you can call it that. It's a grab bag of different things. Some of them will support or are likely to support. We'll, we'll look at the detail, but things like reducing red tape and expediting planning approvals, that's all good. Um, you know, we'll obviously support that, but they're no-brainers. They should have been done years ago. Uh, what the Andrews government is doing is actually saying to developers, though, we'll do these things, which we should do anyway, but in return, we want you to uh, fulfil our responsibility to provide social and affordable housing. So they're exacting a bit of a price for things they should be doing anyway. The biggest um, constraints on residential construction, home ownership and housing affordability, which I know you and I and our colleagues in the party and the movement feel very strongly about um, more broadly. Uh, there's a few things going on there. The big build, these major projects, they're all blowing out because the government doesn't have any cost control. So 
and you don't take my word for it, Katie, the Auditor General in Victoria has identified something like, excuse me, $30 billion, at least in blowouts. It'll be more than that by now. That was a figure from last year. So the blowouts are, I'm being told, upwards of $50 billion. And that's putting enormous pressure on the rest of the budget. So there is simply no money and it's affecting our debt profile. So with, with no cost control in there, you've got the added problem that the big build as part of that lack of cost control is drawing workers away from residential construction and other parts of the economy. And that that's understandable at one level, but it also means that if you have cost blowouts and then project delays, the availability of those workers for other work in residential construction or aged care or wherever it might be that construction's taking place, they're not they're simply not available. So projects in other parts of the economy get delayed. So there's that part that, that arises out of the big build and the mismanagement of that. Then you've got the cost inputs that Daniel Andrews himself has injected into construction. And that's through higher payroll taxes, work cover taxes and land taxes in particular. We've got a new tax today, the 50th, which is a holiday tax. But those three taxes I mentioned earlier, Katie, they, they just flow right into the cost of building a home. And the thing is, the construction firms don't wear that. You know that. I know that. They just get passed on to home buyers. So when we're out there, uh, you know, urging, exhorting people to, you know, don't lose hope in buying your own home, you've got Daniel Andrews on the other side of that saying, well, I'm going to tax tax you on the way through. And, it, and, and that's, if you look at all their taxes that they've imposed, they can't constitute around about 40 to 45% of the costs of buying a home. If you distill those those inputs, those tax inputs, you're looking at about you know, 40 to 45%. So it's an enormous constraint. And why? It's because the government's broken and can't afford to do anything else. So it's kind of making the problem he's trying to solve worse. Well, it's been fantastic talking with you today. Thank you, John. Um, I always like to leave my guests with one final question. And that is, what would you like to see in the next 100 years? Yeah, look, a, a very, very big question. Um, I suppose the, the thing, and I, I suppose a lot of people would want this, is, you know, the fewers. Uh, I, I'll name one, you know, for the big C, the fewer for cancer would be would be the one. And I hope we get it early on in the next, in that sort of next century. And hopefully that's not too far off. But just general cures, Things like Alzheimer's and dementia and, and other, you know, conditions that that um, deprive people of the dignity that, you know, a life ought to be able to provide. So I guess for my part, it's a, a space you know much better than I do, Katie, but but in the health and medical research field, the, the opportunities there, you just marvel at and you just wish we could be around for the next 100 years to see what, what discoveries and what cures they might find. And, and you know, what... Um, your field and your colleagues, yourself included, could do to unlock the capacity that we all have that's unused. I'm always fascinated by that. We're told that we only use a certain capacity of our intellectual brain power. And uh, I've always been fascinated by, geez, how, can we find ways to unlock that? So if health and medical research could do that too, um, that would be uh, probably top of my list, I'd have to say. Well, that's fantastic, John. I now have an even greater reason to have you want to have you as our next premier in 2026 because uh, the medical research precinct uh, is probably, you know, in, it is in the top three in the world. In fact, I always say the Parkville precinct 
um, is like the Silicon Valley of medical research with the 3,000 medical researchers here in Australia is second to the none in all sorts of areas, actually like genetics, allergy, um, med tech. There's some really exciting things happening here. So great to hear that someone like you may be leading us into a better future <laughs> with all these good and as a liberal, I know that we cannot deliver these things without a strong economy. So fantastic that you're someone who cares about increasing our productivity and therefore our prosperity. So fantastic. Thanks so much, to you. Thanks so much John. My pleasure. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple a Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do.